Welcome to Wisdom from Life, where we sit through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Seidler. We are talking today about... So today we're doing something a little bit different. It's episode number 20, and we're labeling it episode 20 extravaganza. So we're going to talk about the show. It's a little bit meta, I guess you could say, right? We're going to talk about how we got started with this, the idea of the show. We've also solicited some questions from viewers, and we've got quite a few of those lined up. So if you had to sum it up in, in one phrase, how, how would you sum this up? We had a milestone? or It's definitely a milestone. Um, it is a... One of those silver linings on COVID. Oh, right. So we're going to talk a bit about how we converted from an in-studio show to what you're hearing right now. And, and if you're watching this, what you're what you're seeing, there's a, quite a story to be told there. Before we do that, though, something we've been meaning to do for quite a long time. Um, you know, this, this is hosted on Riverwest Radio 104.1 FM LP Milwaukee, and we wanted to put in a pitch for people ought to donate. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing to do. Community radio really matters. You get to hear voices that you ordinarily wouldn't uh, hear in commercial radio. And so we've been meaning to do this for quite a while, but we kept on uh, getting too excited about the stuff that we were talking about to get that pitch in there. <laughs> Right, and and they run a really great tight little ship over there. There, um, all the new hosts get a, a really comprehensive rundown of all the do's and don'ts and how to actually, you know, run a radio show. Like it's like boot camp, uh, nearly free for like all those that want to, you know, dip their toes into radio. Yeah, you know, one of the things that they stress that I remember from our our uh, orientation sessions was that we're not just hosts. We're producers. We're the people who make sure that all the different things that have, have to happen with the show do happen. And so there's more agency and more autonomy there. Again, something that's really cool about community radio, I think. And we're not just, you know, these pretty faces and voices to be gawked at. Yeah, I mean, you might be talking about me like 20 years ago, but... <laughs> You're, you're still young enough to be able to, to say that about yourself, I suppose. Uh, why, thank you. I was not actually fishing for compliments. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so let's, let's uh, talk about, some people may be tuning in for the first time, what is this show basically about? We have the tagline of, you know, uh, sifting through philosophy, finding practical advice. That's important. Um, what, else, what else should we say about that? It's kind of like there's a, a difference between academic philosophy as well as or and the the more practical philosophy of philosophy as a way of life and so you know there's uh, academic philosophy of like doing a philosophy of like you know taking a particular thought or idea and trying to just dissect it and um, and then you know making a good reasoned and logical arguments in order to support. Uh, your position or to refute another's position uh, but that is this kind of thing that's so removed from actually everyday life and we have this really vast uh, history of philosophers you know 
looking at what actually makes a good life and what what are these things that result in one's own happiness and a, attainment of a um, a flourishing life and uh, you know from you know all the way from Socrates up to you know a lot of like utilitarians and there's like still moderns that are talking about this but it really has gone out of vogue to a certain extent and so our idea or the the main idea for this radio show is to you know try to say hey look there's all these people that have thought about these really useful things we can actually use these in our everyday life they might work for you they might not but uh at the very least you should be given the opportunity to try them yeah i think so there's a lot of really good points there and one of the last ones about not everything working for every person i think sometimes people view that as a problem, but it really makes sense. If human nature is complicated, and we human beings are, are super complicated because we're not just one generic, you know, nature like we're stamped, you know, like a bunch of robots or something, but each of us develops <laughs> on our own, it, it would make sense that some practices or techniques or insights are going to be more applicable for some people and less applicable for others. And I think a lot of people, when they hear philosophy, they, they imagine it's going to be something totally abstract and general, and it should apply across the board to everybody or it's no good. And, you know, there's, there's a long history in philosophy of thinking about how to apply it in this it's not totally particular. It's not totally general. It's kind of in this middle ground where you can say, oh, you're this kind of person or you're struggling with this kind of problem. This might be helpful for you or try to supplement it with, with this sort of technique rather than a one-size-fits-all fits approach. And so there's a long tradition of that in philosophy, as Dan was just saying, understood as a way of life. Philosophy used in ancient times and medieval and early modern times for a kind of therapy, a, a working on, uh, they called it the soul, we could, we could call it the mind or the, the psyche if you want, or psyche is just soul in Greek, or uh, <laughs> personality, whatever it is that you, you want to call it. Yeah, and we can see this uh, kind of processed into a lot of the more um, recent uh, things in vogue in, in uh, psychology, you know, both, you know, if you go from the Buddhist tradition, a lot of the uh, meditative things have been found into mindfulness, you know, uh, therapies, as well as uh, stoicism is one of the basis for uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and or as well as cognitive emotive behavioral therapy. Um, and there's definitely things that are being systematized into like, okay, th this is something that can very well be applied in a very therapeutic manner, but it's not like these are only for those people that really need therapy. They're, they're general things that can be applied in one's everyday life. Yeah, there's a greater scope to it, you could say. Um, there's also something I'm going to bring up, uh, something from Donald Robertson that he said, in a conversation a while back, he remarked that uh, cognitive behavior therapy, you know, did come out of stoicism, as did you know the earlier rational motive behavior therapy. You could say the whole cognitive revolution, 
in some respect is indebted to Stoic philosophy. And, you know, Albert Ellis wrote books, and there's, there's these other people associated with cognitive behavior therapy that wrote books like, you know, the feeling good that you see in every used bookstore. And, and Donald said something really interesting, which was that generally people read their way through one of these books, and then they never reread it again. They'll read reread portions of it. So, like, um, Beck's, you know, feeling good if, if you're... Struggling with anger, okay, you'll read that chapter, but you're not going to read the whole thing again. Whereas with Stoic philosophy, people will get Seneca's letters and they'll read through the whole thing, and then they'll do it again, and then they'll do it again, and they'll they'll keep doing it because there's something more there. There's something. This is his take as a cognitive behavior therapist. There's something more substantive, something more systematic there that you just can't get out of, I guess you could call them manuals for, for how to retune yourself, you know? And, and the same thing with Marcus Aurelius. People will reread the meditations over and over again or Epictetus's discourses. And I think he's right about that. And I think we can say that about all sorts of other classics. You know, people will reread Nietzsche's uh, Birth of Tragedy, even though Nietzsche, you know, attacked it later on and say, ah, it's a juvenile work. People will reread that over and over again, or Descartes' meditations, or, uh, you know, pick whoever you, you like, because there's something there that it adds a new value each time that you you do reread it. And, and a lot of times these values are things that can directly affect our life or help us understand who we are. It's amazing the way that when we frame things, how that uh, allows us to absorb that information well and like just a manual is yeah it's great for looking up a very specific thing but if you really want to internalize something you know make a story out of it there's uh, a lot True, of yeah. mnemonic devices about like how do you remember like eight different totally disassociated things well you make them part of a story and all of a sudden you can like say the 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 red rocket uh had a washing machine inside it in which uh, <laughs> Albert Einstein um, threw his top hat. You know, like, none of these things are independently connected, but once you weave them together in a story, you can, like, hold on to them to grok them to, yeah. you know, potentially make them your own just a little bit easier. Yeah, that's true. And and with with those kind of writings, I mean... When you read the, the popular um, self-help stuff, it is addressed to you as the audience member, but it's not addressed to you in the same way that like Seneca's letters are or mm. Descartes' meditations is, you know? Even when we're like, like sitting in on somebody else's conversation, we feel like we're either we're, we're you know, like a bystander or maybe, you know, a voyeur who shouldn't be listening to it or something, um, or we feel like we've been invited into the conversation and, and, um, you know, we get to talk with people of, of goodwill and, and some significant intellects who've devoted a lot of thought to issues that we might we might care about. Maybe that's why dialogues are so compelling as a form. You know, this is, again, totally off topic. We, we really got to jump into talking about the show a bit more. <laughs> but, I mean, we're kind of doing the show rather than yeah, talking yeah. about it. Um, I we're not doing the meta. Yeah, I had a student today, and I was having a conversation with him, and it, this is after the class is over. So obviously our, our conversation was digital. We're, we're using a Google Meet to do this, and I, I was following up with him about the class, and he brought up that we had the, these online class sessions, 
Um, and he said that the things that he liked the most about it wasn't just when we're like looking directly at some issue or topic in philosophy. It was an intro to philosophy class. He said he really liked the parts where it, it kind of veered off and turned into dialogue about stuff that was connected to what we were studying, but wasn't directly connected to it. And, um, mm -hmm. and, and I think I decided talking with him in that conversation, I said, you know, for my fall classes, I'm going to build in some, some time that's just like that. Now, it's a risk because what if nobody talks? <laughs> mm. um, but I think we do need some space for that more open-ended uh, discussion where you get to see what other people think and maybe you maybe challenge them or maybe you reinforce what they're saying or maybe you just like, you know, go off on a tangent yourself. Uh, I think we we need that as as people, right? So let's, so going back to our position here, like yeah. how did the show get started? Well, you can you can tell the story. Right. You're, you're, you were really the catalyst for that. So yeah, so um, Greg leads the Stoic Fellowship, at least the, the monthly meetings. Um, and after That's one of those, leads now, right? You, I mean, yeah, you're, you're well, actually leading you more still, of the meetings. Ah. But like the monthly meeting is still your domain for the most part. But we we met up before um, when we could actually meet up, and um, at the library and afterwards, uh, this guy was like, "Hey, is there something you want to kind of collab on?" And um, came down to uh, I knew about River West Radio, and we like started talking about that. And um, you had already done something with them. Uh, earlier was Zob, right? You'd uh, had they'd had you on for yeah. I'd gone on a couple shows like as a guest for interviews, mm -hmm. and and I'd been aware of it because I, I lived in the River West neighborhood for yeah, exactly. the last decade, um, and and hung out in Zob's TV. Zob is the the owner of the building and the head of the the radio station, at least partly co with um, with Martin. Martin, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and uh, so we went on, and they're having it was the end of the year, so they're having a fun drive, and so That's we went right. on to uh, help out and do some uh, holiday. We did yeah, and so it's actually if you go to the our podcast, it's it's the very first thing in our feed is a, a pre wisdom for life, wisdom for life. Yeah, it was wisdom for life before we even had. A real idea for the show. We were just doing the stuff that we normally do in Wisdom for Life. Yeah, and so that was uh, what. Uh, that was in December. It's good. Right? It's giving yeah. good. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Tied in with the holiday season and donations, and yeah, that was that, that's true. There was a lot of synergy in that topic there. Yeah, and that was that was kind of fun because um, well, Martin was manning the uh, the sound thing, right? So we yeah. didn't have to worry about that. We just sat, you know. Uh, chit-chatting about all of our ideas. Um, and then we decided, let's do a show. Right. So we get, uh, like, when's the next time that we can do the orientation? Because you had to do the orientation before you were allowed to basically touch anything. Um, and rightly so, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Like, we're, we're sitting here and we're, we're drinking our liquids. and That would be a no-no, yeah. Yeah, unless that was like a water bottle with like a, a yeah, no, just no. <laughs> Keep them yeah. away from all the electronics there. <laughs> it's way too expensive. Um, 
It's not expensive. You don't need to go there at all. <laughs> um, and it was it was just a a really good time, and we we did our first show, and it sucked a little bit, but it's okay because it didn't totally suck. Yeah, I mean we're. What do they say that? Not just getting our feet wet, but sort of like if we want to use a feet metaphor, we're figuring out how to stand on the ground right. Or I sort of lost the, the train of the metaphor, but but yeah. So the, we decided uh, we would do a show, and um, when did we when did we do the? It was in February, right? That we did the uh, the orientations. We had to come in on the weekends. Yeah, and then was it really early March that we started doing? Our first episodes? You know, I'm not sure if it was <laughs> late February or early March. Um, you said that we've been doing it for roughly six months, and, and I was kind of surprised when when I saw you write that. And then I thought, yeah, actually, it probably is close to six months now, because I'd forgotten yeah. how, how late in the year we are. So. Yeah, as, as well as, like, if you, if you go back to that December uh, show, which was, I don't know, yeah, I guess in that case we've been doing. I mean, if that counts, mm-hmm. then we've been doing the show for eight months because yeah. we're in August now. And we did it every other week for a while. That's until... right, right. Yeah, we we only got two episodes in, and yeah. something kind of funny happened. I mean, not funny in the grand scheme of things because COVID is not a, a laughing matter, but. Um, we showed up for our second episode. We had all this stuff plotted out and you know planned out. We were at the fuel, which was next door, which now I guess is closing for, you know, ever. Uh, I I don't know. It's it, you know, it, who knows with with pandemic times. But um, we we went in the station, and I was kind of surprised that they locked the door after us. I don't know if you noticed that. And yeah. Uh, I thought, well, okay, maybe it's just the time or something like that. Because we were doing 5 o'clock at that time, right? 5 o'clock on Fridays. And we did our show. Very premium spot. Yeah, Yeah, well, actually, it's great when people are actually driving. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) But um, so we did our show, and it went went good. You know, you can hear it online if you want to. And then uh, I don't remember if it was Zav or Martin, but one of them came up to him and said, oh, you know the station's closed, right? You know, you got the email. We were like, we didn't know. No. <laughs> so we we ended up being the last in-person show uh, where people were actually sitting at the mics and, and all of that sort of stuff. And then, then we had to figure out, well, what are we going to do? Well, also, uh, we also were – the reason that we didn't get the email is that we were such a new show at the time right, right, that yeah. we had been um, not fully integrated into the email list. And so the, the email had gone out. I just totally – right by us without us knowing yeah into the ether it went to us and that show was focused on fear and worries about the pandemic that nobody knew you know how big it was going to get right right and yeah yeah uh we, we tried to make our stuff rather you know insular and not totally topical to the times but you know there's there's a lot that is rather evergreen that is still very relevant if we're talking about philosophy as a way of life yeah, that's the cool thing about philosophy. Even when you're applying it, you can take uh, the applications and then move them somewhere else. And, you know, this isn't going to be the last disease or pandemic that we, we face. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been, you know, having some light reading of uh, Camus' The Plague. <laughs> yeah. 
And it's like, oh, look, that happened, and that happened, and that happened. And they're like, yeah, we've seen this before. I'm like, and we'll see it again. Yeah, it's quite a popular book now. Yeah. We, we should probably, at some point in time, do something about that on, on, on one of the shows, you know? Yeah. Maybe, maybe pandemic literature. Um, yes. What, what we can learn from it. That might be an interesting thing. So, you know, now we're, we're on the air, but obviously we haven't been able to go to the station uh, mm. since the second episode. So that's, counting this episode, um, 18 episodes where we're doing it in a different way. Yeah, and like, we, you had your GoPro, and so uh, for the first two episodes we have GoPro footage from us in studio, and then yeah. what, the next two episodes I think we don't have any video because the recording just wasn't working right. Right, I think uh, I forgot to record one time, and there was <laughs> another time where it just didn't come out right or something. So we're, we're what we're using if, for those who are kind of you know interested in the geekery of this, we're using Zoom, and that's how we record the video. That's how Dan and I can both see each other and have some sort of rapport. You know, we're not sitting across from each other in a station. We're we're looking at um, our our images. Uh, mediated electronically, and then each of us is using Audacity, which is free software that you can you can get. It's really good for recording things, and we take those those recordings. You know, Dan sends me the one from his end, and we clean them up a bit, and then we put them together and add the show music that Scott Truly gave us early on, uh, before we started the show. Right, we we commissioned him to to do that, and he, he's a good friend, so he was willing to create a kind of Joe Satriani-esque kind of uh, track for us. And that, that's what we do now. Each, mm-hmm. each week, we, um, we've only had, I think, one week where we didn't meet, I think, because I was sick. And mm-hmm. we've been churning away and addressing topics each week. And um, it's, it's now, I think, I, maybe at first, I don't know, were you, were you less comfortable at the start? I know I was. With how oh, yeah. we're doing things. Like at the radio show or just on doing video? in the new way with the video yeah. and... Yeah, um, it was... There's less dials here than at the radio show, so that was <laughs> one benefit. I think the two uh, shows that we did it, you did the soundboard, right? Yes, yeah, I think I did. So I didn't have to. And I, I think you were supposed to do the next one. but then that That's right, okay. I got out of it. <laughs> We're probably going to uh, have to be retrained when, when we actually go back to oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, and one of the things is looking, like, because beforehand we were totally live, and now we're not, and so if there's minor flubs, we can edit them, and so there's only been a few times, but it's like a, that one little, it's like a safety net <laughs> of like, oh, I said the wrong word. I should not say that word. On the air, we don't actually have a real delay where we can like bleep stuff out or anything like that. So yeah, here yeah. here we here we can. Um, and actually, in, in the editing, because we usually go a little bit longer than we're supposed to. Uh, if there's a long pause, I'll I'll like trim that out. You know. So mm-hmm. the, so what we're doing here is it's not quite a podcast, although we we have it established as a podcast too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, you know, it is radio because it's being played on, on the radio, um, both locally and, and worldwide streaming. Um, so it's kind of a hybrid thing, really. Yeah. 
and I think it works quite well for what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 something kind of interesting to think about. It might not work for every single topic um, that's out there. It works good for our stuff. Yeah. So one of the things that I thought we would talk about is what we've learned or things that we've uh, changed over over the course of this. How it's how it's perhaps changed us in some ways. I mean, we're not you know we're not walking down the street because obviously we're not walking down any streets most of the time, mm-hmm. and, and people coming up to us, oh, you're the wisdom for life, people, <laughs> things like that. Um, but it you know it's it's getting some traction, and I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, there's you know a decent amount of people on YouTube as well as that download the uh, podcast rather regularly. Um, yeah, it's it's nice to see that someone is finding some use out of this, you know, so that, little that's, thing that we do. That's one of the things that I wouldn't say it's like a total. I never knew any of this before. Sort of learning thing. It's more like a confirmation. I I knew, and you knew too, that there's a big hunger out there for. You could call it substantive engagement with ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Something that that can reach the ordinary person, so it's not being presented in a very jargony, academic way, but still has some rigor to it. So it's not just you know fluff, um, mm-hmm. or or you know doing doing that, that middle ground exactly, which is yeah. a tough tough place to reach, I think, for for a lot of people. So you could call this kind of a proof of concept. You know, not only do we know that you and I can like do this and, mm-hmm. and, and make it work, you know, week after week after week. But we know that people will listen and we know that people will respond and share it and be interested in it. It's not the first philosophy radio show, obviously. Oh, no. um, but it's, it's uh, I, I don't know of any other ones in the Midwest. You know? and, and I'm aware of uh, quite a few, like, philosophy podcasts that mm-hmm. and like some are even from the bbc and whatnot but they're they're all, most of them are very academic minded of like like these are the arguments and this person has his position this person has his position and let's you know argue those positions which yeah. is like it's interesting but it's not like how can you make one's life better by knowing these things yeah that's true there's there's a there's a lack of, of that out there, um, which this is remedying hopefully for, for hopefully. some people. So, um, what I mean, what else have we learned? You know, there's the whole technical aspect of it. I, I'm I'm still not like a whiz on all of these platforms necessarily, but we we had to learn them, mm-hmm. uh, and that was that was always nice to learn something new, some you know some new yeah. techniques and stretch a bit. I mean, you're more of a tech person. By, by vocation than I am. So mm-hmm. I think it was probably maybe less of a stretch for you. Yeah, even though you're definitely a much more the uh, social media maven, I've, uh, for the most part, screwed my uh, want to be on there. So I, I try to not. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I'm like, man, like, I've got a degree in computer science. I work in tech. And... I try to use social media as small as amount as possible versus those out there. And maybe it's just because I'm so close to it that I know that could be uh... how the sausage is made. And so I don't want to be there anymore. (laughs) You know, you understand the algorithms better than the rest of us do, you know? Yeah. Unfortunately. (laughs) That, that, I mean, there could be something to that, 
uh, that the whole sausage being made metaphor. When you're when you're that close to what's going on, maybe it loses its charm. Well, as part of it, I think is uh, just the the psychological benefits of not like constantly being bombarded both with advertisement but also with um yeah the idea of like these perfect lives that all these people are around you uh and we don't have a good way to map yeah. on our usual way that we interact with those people close to us to you know a thousand friends you can't be close to a thousand people and have meaningful relationships with a thousand people yeah or or compare your life to a thousand people because you're going to see a thousand people's best days and none of their worst ones. And you're just going to, in uh, comparison, feel really bad about yourself. And that's... I was laughing because I was thinking he's talking about Instagram you know, and maybe Facebook to a certain extent. I spend a lot more time on Twitter than I do Facebook and I don't do Instagram. Uh, and, I, and I think you do Reddit, right? So, and Reddit yeah. is, is kind of like that. Facebook, Instagram, those are the places for like, you know, taking the picture in front of the sunflower field and using all the filters and stuff like that. And I think there's some people who do do that on Twitter. But for the most part, Twitter is a lot closer to the ground, let's say, you know. Mm -hmm. um, people are complaining about their lives and yelling at each other. It's sort of like going from the you know, clean, wonderful, beautiful place with all these calm people, you know, in their ethereal gowns and stuff like that, down to like the, you know, it, when they had that show Welcome Back Hot or back in the 70s, the sweat hogs were what they called those those guys in Mr. Cotter's class. And I think Twitter is kind of like that. Certainly it is for me. And I and that's, I kind of like that. So I, I, um, I spend more time there than I do on, on Facebook. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I guess with both Twitter and Reddit, you, I really think you need to curate it. Otherwise, you're just going to be yeah. uh, stuck in the middle of the cacophony of a, a thousand angry voices. And that's not really helpful for substantive conversation either. Yeah, it'll certainly give you a skewed picture of, of the world and how awful it is if you if you don't do it, you know. So what are what are some things that you've learned uh, through this process? I mean, some technical things. Right? Yeah, some technical things. Um, like going through the topics that we do. Like we choose our topics, and then we kind of like, okay, I know a bit about this, but I should also go back and like look at my sources and reread some things. And so I guess one of the earliest ones was, or not the earliest ones, recent one was um, our episode on Acrasia and I a had weakness of will, right? Yes, weakness yeah. of will. And so I had a really strong affinity to the people do bad things because they uh have misunderstood what the good is. They've they've said, Oh, this thing that we can define as bad and they think it's good at the time. So like I'm going to uh hold up this liquor store because I I want the money because, you know, the money is good, even though that that action is definitely a bad action and uh and reading into the crossia much more is like okay there are still a lot of people that have that misconstruction or misapplication of the good to the bad but yeah. there's also people that just like through apathy and lots of other reasons just don't do the right thing even though it's right there in front of them 
Yeah, they or they know that it's the wrong thing, and they're going to do it anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, like you said, <laughs> humans are complicated. So are you happier knowing that that often is the case, or would you prefer to be back thinking I, that, I, well, no, people I, I would prefer to have a representation of reality that is closer to reality. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Um, Descartes raises that question at a couple different points in his works about, you know, one, one possibility would be, it would be nice to like think everything goes well and the world is arranged and, you know, for the best and all that, all sorts of beautiful, um, let's call them dreams or, or um, uh, falsehoods, not to, not to, you know, mm-hmm. put too fine a point on it. They're th- believing things that aren't the case and, and being happy because of that. Descartes says, well, truth itself is, is a good. And if you know, if you even suspect that like you're, you're being deceived about it, you're not really going to be that happy with it. And he's got this great metaphor at the, the end of um, Meditation One where he talks about being like a servant whose life sucks. It's terrible. And he's dreaming. But he's having the kind of dream where he, you, you kind of know that you're dreaming, maybe because he realizes that, you know, there's a big discrepancy between this. And he knows that he's going to have to wake up really soon, but he tries to extend the dream as long as possible so that he can enjoy what's, what's in the dream, knowing it's false, you know. And he says maybe that's, that's um, the case that, that some of us are in. Uh, but, you know, we, we eventually have to face things as they are, or at least as, as closer to how they are, right? I feel like there's there's a place for fantasy and to okay. as a, a momentary escape, kind of an, uh, an inner citadel of a, a quiet and contemplative space. Yeah. Um, but uh, that is only a respite, and, you know, once, once you've, you know, replenished yourself, one needs to go back and actually deal with the, what is the real you know, the very first work of science fiction in the West, and, and it, maybe there's earlier works in, in other areas, uh, is by, it's called The True History, and it's full of lies, and it's by um, Lucian of Samsoda, right? Samoda, uh, I always get the, the, the name mixed up. And he begins it with this preface where he says, I'm writing this, and it's full of lies, um, and I'm writing it to provide relaxation for people who spend their time doing difficult intellectual work, right? Just to let yourself unwind. Just, just like how, you know, um, bodybuilders and wrestlers and people who are always doing things with their body, they need to have some downtime too. This is my downtime book for you. And so he effectively invents the science fiction genre, you know, millennia before the big boom in science fiction with a story of a trip to the moon and mm-hmm. interstellar warfare and stuff like that, just to allow us to uh, relax a bit, you know, in right. fantasy. So uh, do you have anything that you learned? Well, like I said, you know, some, some of the platform things, um, what can be done, how, how to um, think about, you know, presentation of this on the radio um so far i haven't had to bleep anything out (laughs) so but you know you never know um what else uh 
Uh, I, I would say that there's there's quite a few things where it's been because of like um, our conversations or responses of people to the show afterwards. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that I, there, there's a point to that that way of looking at things, you know. So it's more of a like expanding the uh, the um, horizons, you could say, uh, adding new voices in there. Um, that's what I would say. I, I, I've learned the most. I, again, too, the proof of concept. This, this actually, people will listen to this. Mm -hmm. um, you never really know until you try it out. Right. So we got some questions from our viewers. Yeah. So um, let's read the first one. It, 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 it's kind of a long one. So it says, "I've been struggling. I've been trying to use Stoic principles in my life. It's very valuable most of the time. One thing I struggle with is motivation." Stoics say, go and do things which concern only four virtues and don't care about anything else. However, for me, it's more complicated than that. If I want to get a promotion of some kind of status, which would enable me to do good things, like feed, clothe my children and wife, help my parents or other people, and there's obstacles on the way, then I say to myself, the thing I want to accomplish is indifferent and I get tranquility. However, I don't get as much motivation as I would being super anxious about it and would probably work a lot harder to get it if I was stressed by it. How can I have the same level of motivation if I was under stress together with being calm and rational? So it's a good question. Fair, fair question, right? Yeah. Uh, so like this is kind of the, the common stoic trap uh, that many people fall into when they, they go into this. And it's very similar to happens within uh, the Buddhist tradition as well, of feeling, you know, getting like rid of dukkha or sufferings by um, removing your dependence on things. And and part of this is like the indifference are like the, the outcomes, but like your actions in doing these things are the things that are actually important, that have value and part of this whole thing is that we it's it's a reorientation away from this you know uh anxious and stressed uh motivation factor into yeah. a cultivating a internal locus of control or center of control um that is that desires doing the good and so it's like you work on saying like what are the things that i actually desire here and trying to orient yourself to that and it's going to take work you know they say anger is a great motivator but it also leads you to potentially really negative bad ends and so you got to be careful in how that is applied yeah that's a that's a great answer i would i would say as well that you know it is a beginner's mistake in, in Stoicism because when you study Stoicism, you find out that the four virtues, and those are wisdom, justice, temperance, and, and courage, those don't just like sit in, in, in a person all by themselves. They apply to things in the world, and they apply to indifference. So we want to use things that are indifferent wisely and justly and prudently and courageously. And so, you know, the motivation can be to do so virtuously, right? To, mm -hmm. to, you know, so let's take money, for example. The Stoics don't say, oh, money doesn't matter, so just, like, throw it all away or burn it up or anything. You know, they, they think you ought to be prudent with your money. It's just that you shouldn't value that above, say, being virtuous or um, other things that, that really matter. So, 
so you can have the, the motivation without being anxious all the time. And it, it's too bad. You know, I mean, if you think about people who feel that they need to make themselves feel bad in order to get something good done, that's a, that's a crappy way to live. You know, right. wouldn't it be nice to be able to motivate yourself to get things done because it's the right thing um, and not have to feel those negative emotions as a result? It, it just feels, feels like self-flagellation. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sorry, I think we could... whipping oneself to... Yeah, I think, I think we could say the same thing about... Well, you brought up, you know, anger, right? So Seneca says anything you can accomplish with anger, you can accomplish with... You know, thinking of things through with reason. Maybe we can say the same thing about anxiety. If you're relying on anxiety as your crutch to get you, you know, to do what you're supposed to do, or, or guilt or whatever, wouldn't it be nicer just to be able to use reason to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and this is something that we're finding here right now with COVID, especially if you're oh. you're laid off or you're working from home, you no yeah. longer have that office environment or that boss that's <laughs> you know looming over your shoulder in order to motivate you to actually do the things that you're supposedly having to do. And if you can move yourself into, oh, I want to do this for its own sake, for myself, um, that's that's the way that you actually flourish in that environment. You know, yeah. it's, a lot of it is environmental. That's true, yeah. So we have another virtue-oriented question. Um, somebody who was reading The Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft, he says, uh, towards the end in Chapter 12, Wollstonecraft talks about cruelty as it relates to virtue. He says, I, I really like this particular passage in her argument in general against cruelty. And here's what... Wollstonecraft says, This habitual cruelty is first caught at school where it is one of the rare sports of the boys to torment the miserable brutes that fall in their way. The transition as they grow from barbarity to brutes to domestic tyranny over wives, children, and servants is very easy. Justice or even benevolence will not be a powerful spring of action unless it extend to the whole creation. Nay, I believe it may be delivered as an axiom that those who can see pain unmoved will soon learn to inflict it. And then the person says, I'm trying to get a better understanding of the relationship between cruelty and virtue in general. Is cruelty the opposite of virtue? Can one have virtue and cruelty? Can the pursuit of virtue eliminate cruelty? And how damaging is cruelty to the pursuit of virtue? So this is, a, this is a very important question. We do see a lot of cruelty in the world, and um, it's not something we, we talk about that much in, in ethics, but it is something that we certainly do react to quite a bit. Mm-hmm. In response, like, absolutely, it's, like, dichotomous. I would call cruelty a, a vicious thing, you know, the, the opposite of virtue. And, you know, we, we translate... Uh, virtue as excellence and this is the what is it excellent what is it excellent to be a a human and and to directly you know answer uh, wollstonecraft is what is it excellent to be a human a man a husband a father in response to these people that are being cruel to their contemporaries their wives their children and if you know virtue is there to lead us to a better life especially where one values, you know, uh, pro-social actions, which are uh, usually we've seen to lead to you know, the betterment of society, um, then being cruel is absolutely vicious. The the opposite of our excellence 
or virtue. Specifically, being cruel is unjust, for cruelty is treating someone worse than they themselves deserve. Yeah, that's that. Those are all good points. Um, I'd add that cruelty in ancient philosophy and running again through you know modern times has been called a vice. And when they're calling it a vice, they they aren't just saying it's something bad. They're saying it's something that becomes part of your character, it becomes dispositional, um, it becomes a habit. So. By beginning with cruelty in one way to, say, one set of people, eventually you start becoming cruel to more and more people. And, you know, I guess you know, part of what's really bad about cruelty is it doesn't just, like, make other people miserable. Its motive is to make other people miserable. Mm. You know, it's to, to hurt people, to take things away, to humiliate. And Seneca actually talks about this in on, on Clemency and on Anger, where he, he singles out cruelty as a terrible vice. He says, anger is a real big problem. Cruelty is even worse than that, you know? And um, I think he's right about that. People who become cruel and engage in cruelty eventually come to view the world and those within it as either those who are going to be cruel to them or objects for their own cruelty. And it reminds me of something that um, Alistair McIntyre once once said in a conference. Um, the the gist of his remarks were that, you know, he was as, as, as a kid he was beaten for not learning Greek irregular verbs. He went he was in an English school system. And this is a very long time ago. And he said, ah, you know, I, I I can read Sophocles and you can't, and that was a joke in it. But then he talked a little bit about why they stopped doing corporal punishment in English schools. And it wasn't just because it was bad for the kids. Obviously it was. It was very painful and humiliating and many of them went on to become bullies themselves. But it was totally corrupting to the teachers. Because the teachers got to like it, got to like punishing. And then they would seek out occasions for punishing. So totally subverted order and justice within the classroom, you know. it stands in the and way the of trust. so many things. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, it destroys trust as well. Right. Um, so yeah, cruelty is uh, it, it, it's it's a vice by itself. I guess you could say in a global way, it's incompatible with pretty much all of the virtues. Right. Mm-hmm. So we we got a um, really general question: Is marriage worth it, or making a family? Um, no additional explanation. <laughs> uh, answering questions that are that general, you almost got to say, well, I don't know. Is it, is it, is it for you? You know, yeah. what's your, what's your situation? So I, I say very similar. I take kind of the absurdist thing, you know, worth it for whom <laughs> I find it dependent on the individuals involved for many. Yes. For some, no, is it a good thing in and of itself? I take the absurdist position of no, but it does not matter. We are the ones who give it value. There are, however, things that one can only achieve with others, and if you value those things, then one ought to join that group, in yeah. this case, marriage or family. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. So when we say, is marriage worth it, right? What kind of marriage? Mm-hmm. Um, if we think about the stereotype where, like, you know, um, there's, you know, the wife doesn't get along with the mother-in-law, and, you know, the husband is kind of a layabout and all these other you know, the back and forth things like we see in comic strips or, um, 
in, in uh, sitcoms or stuff like that. Maybe it's not. Maybe if that's what marriage really is, then uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe if if, you, if I were to picture getting married in that way, then I wouldn't have gotten married. Uh, I think there's there's a lot of potential goods that can come out of it if the people are actually you know fit to be married to each other. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's probably some people who should never be married just because they're terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> um, or are they they're only people that work well as hermits? Who knows? Like their well, best that's, life that's is another being thing a hermit. I was going to say, too, is, um, you know, the entire, in ancient and medieval times, the entire monastic uh, profession, there were a lot of people who shouldn't have been monks. They were actually, in the, in the Middle Ages, they were what were called the oblati. If you were like, you know, the eighth kid, you might get given to the monastery, and they'd be like, bring this kid up as a monk. You're, you're just kind of SOL in that case. <laughs> um, but there were a lot of people who were attracted to that that lifestyle. Some of them actually who were married and then they're like, listen, I want to be done with being married. I'm going to become a monk. How about you become a nun or vice versa? (laughs) And sometimes they actually wanted to do that. And you know, why would they want to do that? Well, you you have to have something else that's drawing you in. So in the case of uh, traditional Christian monasteries, it'd be to to pray and I don't know, get close to God or something in the case of like Buddhist monasteries to, to meditate and, you know, understand emptiness or whatever, whatever it's going to be. But there has to be something transcendent. I mean, it could, it could be just like a hermit out in nature, but then you value nature, right? So I guess the next question would be, <laughs> some of us feel that we are not fully who we could be, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be? Are humans like rocks, and we are, and we are just all. We all just are. Are yeah. Is there a specifically human way to be, or could we be in a way that is the same for rocks, gods, platonic ideals, and mathematical objects? That's a that's a kind of a, a strange uh, miscellaneous drawer to throw everything into, but yeah. Um, I mean, I, I kind of interpret that as asking about somebody who maybe doesn't feel like they're um, reaching their potential. And that's often the case for all of us. Um, But, you know, you can talk about it as being sort of a, I'm not reaching my potential in this way over here. Or it could be like a, a, you know, larger existential crisis. You know, what am I? You know, that sort of of business. Um, Okay, Neo. Whoa. You know... (laughs) That isn't where I was. I was going with it, uh, but yeah, I guess you could you could say that the Matrix is a, a voyage of self discovery or something. I mean, oh, yeah. he was. It just so happens to find out he's the hero. Yeah. I mean, a real existential crisis is more about given that you're not the hero mm-hmm. as you thought you were. What what value does your your life have? Um, so maybe uh, the Matrix is seen through like Switch. Because Switch is a really interesting character. And in the original um, uh, script, she is, um, I believe the character is um, male, but presents themselves as female when they're in the Matrix. And that's the reason they're in Switch. And they they had to tone that down because in 1999, that was still weird. And, you know, it it shows the the Wachowski sisters, you know, 
in their own transitions, like you could see them writing their their lives and their experiences into their characters. Huh. Um, but you know, she also dies a rather unceremonious death at the hands of um, what Cipher, which you know is another okay. apropos name. It's almost as like on the nose as Count Dooku or Darth Sidious. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, you know. Maybe as that, like, you know, this person that goes through this massive transformation and that because by dint of living in both the real world and a, a matrix in which one can present themselves however they want, they have the ability to then become their true selves, um, only to have their life just cut short in a rather unceremonious and unheroic way. Yeah. I mean, movies only offer you one vantage point. Even even like, the, remember how in the 90s we'd do all these movies where there's like, you know, four different screens or like, you know, all this non-linear time stuff. You're really still stuck with one, one basic way of looking at things. Um, but there's all these other genres that, that could offer us greater ways of doing it. I mean, think about massive multiplayer games. Um, each person, I guess, could be the hero in their own local area, but they're not the—they're not necessarily the the you know capital T, uh, capital H hero. Mm -hmm. Should okay. we take some some other yeah. questions? Uh, okay, so here's one: uh, In what depth should a philosophy student study rhetoric? So, it's always a, I know how much and you know he is asking the right question in mm -hmm. what depth and you know definitely you need to know enough rhetoric that you can understand an argument and uh reduce one's chance of falling into the pitfalls of fallacious reasoning but not so much that rhetoric becomes the master of logic and reason and that way sophistry lies and if you're you're you you master rhetoric to the point where you can make any argument sound good, then you're mooring on what should be argued than sometimes comes unmoored. Yeah. I would actually myself probably be more receptive to studying rhetoric, um, but I'm, I'm influenced there by Aristotle and Cicero, both of whom thought that you need to have this kind of integration of rhetoric and philosophy. And so what keeps the rhetoric that you study at a high level, which, which Aristotle did and Cicero did as well, from turning into sophistry is the influence of philosophy, like ethics and you know, political theory and stuff like that. So you won't just use that, that great capacity. Uh, and you might say, well, that's a shame. You know, you're, you're, you know, your opportunities aren't being taken and your skills are lying fallow. And, and Cicero would say, well, in that case, that, that, that's fine. You know, you don't have to make every argument, uh, uh, even if it's not a good argument, look good. So. Well, and rhetoric is like a tool. You can use a sword exactly. to defend a city, or you can use a sword to, you know, be a, a highwayman and yeah. and rob and kill people for their money on the road. It, like, it's it's in how you use it. Is it? It's it is the means to the ends, and the ends, or the talos, as Aristotle would put it, are the things that actually matter here. Right, yeah. And some people who are very good at things sometimes 
uh, always want to practice that. And Aristotle would say, no, you gotta, you got to put it in, in context. Let's do the one more question because we're getting close to the uh, okay. of, of our show. So if individually you were marooned on a desert island with one wise person to seek knowledge from, who would you respectively choose? You can't choose loved ones or life partners. I was thinking about this and it's like, okay. I was like, okay, maybe like a, a happy philosopher because like I gotta get stuck with them. So it's not just like deep <laughs> you don't conversation. Want around. Yeah, and, and so like I, I don't want Nietzsche. He he's just no. He was um, sick all the time too, you know. Yeah, um, and just kind of dour. I'm just like, okay, who's a happy philosopher? I'm like, I'm not, no one's coming to mind. And I was like, you know what? With a uh, philosophy is the love of wisdom, and I could definitely apply that. Uh, definition to the physicist Richard Feynman, who you know won a, a Nobel Prize in physics for his work on like quantum physics, yeah, um, and and was has this just amazing life. Uh, but like the thing that is so intriguing about him is that he goes about everything with this almost childlike wonder in the way that he looks at the world. And he'll there's like a story of him hanging out and they like they break a a, a piece of um, spaghetti, uncooked spaghetti, and it breaks into three pieces. And the third piece, it, like, always breaks at, like, a certain ratio of the other two pieces. And, like, huh. well, that's really interesting. And so they, yeah. they just keep on breaking, and, like, their their whole night of, like, oh, we're gonna have a nice dinner together, turns into them just, like, investigating the, the most mundane of things that has no practical use, but he, it's just that, like, I'm going to uh, dig into this and you know maybe there was some uh principle there i'm oh, not quite good. sure that, yeah. that could be applied to something else and so you don't know until you actually try so i'm gonna say just very briefly because we're, we're just about oh. out of time um you know it's tough for for a philosopher to, to, to pick who they'd be moored with there's so many cool philosophers i would take cicero and I think I would pick him because he had such an encyclopedia grasp of things. He'd be really interesting to, to chat with. So, uh, any final thoughts? Uh, you mentioned Feynman. I think you have something that you want to bring up uh, to take us out on. Well, just before we go, I want to once again thank River West Radio, 104.1 FM LP Milwaukee. And you can give donations to riverwestradio.com. They're a great organization. And so we'll leave you today with the words of Richard Feynman. Nobody ever figures out what life is all about, and it doesn't matter. Explore the world. Nearly everything is really interesting if you get into it deeply enough. <laughs>